Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. This famous saying has been attributed to various church fathers, including Augustine of Hippo, who definitely did not say it. Whatever the source, it's become a popular sentiment in the modern church. There's just one problem, though. The Bible doesn't flag its essential and non-essential teachings for us. That's up to the interpreter. And one person's essential may be another person's non-essential, and vice versa. In this episode, we're going to interrogate this hierarchy of doctrine and ask whether applying the non-essential label to anything in Scripture is really such a good idea. There is a problem with mere Christianity. And I realize in saying that, that I'm in danger of losing my C.S. Lewis card. So let me clarify that I don't mean there's a problem with C.S. Lewis's famous apologetics book, Mere Christianity, but rather with the concept that I think that term has come to embody. The idea that there is a core of Christian truth, a sort of... um, like inner sanctum of theology, and that's the stuff that really matters. That's the stuff that is non-negotiable, the stuff that we should all have in common, but that outside of that mere Christianity, there's a lot of other stuff that is based on various things the Bible says, but we disagree over how to interpret those things. And so those are secondary matters, right? So in essentials, we ought to have unity. That's the territory of mere Christianity. But then beyond that, there can be diversity, disagreement, that sort of thing, because those things are of secondary importance. They don't matter so much. That's the idea that I want to talk about, because I think there's something in that idea, though, that, that is, as good as it sounds and as well-intentioned as it is, I think it's actually destructive to not only the Christian faith, but also to the needs of human beings. So that's essentially the territory that, that I hope to cover in this episode. And Cameron, before we dive in, I just want to pause a little bit and and think about let's say the 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 positive benefits of the thing that I'm about to lay into. <laughs> so do you think we can acknowledge that there are some benefits to focusing on essentials and agreeing to disagree on everything else? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I, I can think of two two reasons. Uh, the first is that at least we're saying there are some essentials. Which is a good place to start. Good point. That you know, there are some things that are actually essential. So that just that presupposition is really important for any faith. The second, though, is that idea of of unity despite diversity of opinions. And when you were talking, I instantly thought back to my days at Princeton Seminary, which is a pretty diverse 
campus. And oftentimes I would have the conversation with students that, well, we disagree on X, Y, Z, but we essentially hold to the Apostles' Creed and that's the thing that we have in common. So therefore we can get along. Mm-hmm. And as we're going to talk about, that's maybe an insufficient view. But in the moment, I was always grateful that we could point to something and say, oh, yeah, like you actually believe those things. I do, too. That's great. Right. Yeah. No, I think you make two really good points. So we could say uh, there's a benefit to being able to say, hey, look, there are some non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're going to be a Christian, there are some things you have to believe. Yeah. And that can help with unity you know that can help with uh let's say the the purity of christian expression and then the unity within a church that is often divided by different interpretations and so i think those two benefits are are real and and there's a third one that i think i could throw in there which is it can be a really good guard against uh what we could call majoring on the minors you know, where you'll run into people within the church who are not that concerned about core tenets of orthodoxy, but have some sort of weird pet <laughs> doctrine that means everything to them, yeah. you know, and, and that's the hill that they're going to die on. And having some sort of emphasis or, or, or way of doing a sort of theological triage, right? And saying, like, these are foundational beliefs and then working outwards we can see like your pet doctrine as zealous as you are for it is is way downstream of of these essential things i think that too is a benefit right perspective let's say so like we've got a basis for unity we do have some way of describing what a christian is in distinction from any other kind of person and uh, and then we also have a way of orienting ourselves so that we're looking towards what's what's important and not getting too far in the weeds and and i think all of those are 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 benefits and and i think it's probably fair to say that the beginning of this movement towards identifying the essentials had goals that were kind of in harmony with with those points you know if you look in the early 20th century there was this uh series of books called the fundamentals this is during the period of the the modernist versus fundamentalist controversy and the reason the fundamentalists were called fundamentalists is because they published this series of books and they identified five fundamentals of orthodox christianity the authors of those papers disagreed on a lot of things uh, there were Presbyterians and Baptists and, and you know, all sorts of different Christians rubbing elbows there, but they had a unity in their belief in those fundamentals. So they were attempting to do something kind of ecumenical, like they wanted to reach across their differences and find a common unity. They wanted to insist on a non-negotiable Christian identity. And I think they were trying to emphasize what they saw as most important. Although usually, I think obviously in the, in the context of a controversy, oftentimes what seems most important is what is most hotly contested. Yeah. Right? So there's a real emphasis on uh, miracles and, and the kind of things a modernist would want to excise from the Bible. Mm-hmm. That would be something that would go to the top of the list. 
of a fundamentalist idea of what is essential, right? But yeah, given it's contextual, all that, right? Right, is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I think the intentions are good. Like they they see that Christianity is being hollowed out, and so their response is essentially to draw a line and say, you know, you can't get rid of this stuff. Like if you don't believe in this, then you're not really recognizably Christian any longer. So far, so good. But but what I I would say the problem is that the beginning of the 20th century, that kind of approach made us a, a certain sense, right, in, in its context. But that over time, it has had a bad side effect, like an unintended consequence, which is that it put the evangelical church on this path of essentializing, right? That now the the five things we have in common over time became the only five things that matter and then became like, okay, well, which of the five really matters? So that generation after generation, like that core was being consolidated or or whittled down so that now, you know, in modern evangelicalism, if you ask yourself, what are the essential biblical beliefs of a modern evangelical? It's, it's not, too much of an exaggeration to say that basically we just got to believe in Jesus. Now, we can disagree on everything else, but but as long as you believe in Jesus, we're good, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's great. You know, it's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah. But historically, there was more to being a Christian than just saying, "Well, I believe in Jesus." It's almost like it went from the essentials or the fundamentals to the minimal amount, you know, it's a minimalist theology of what is, what is the only, what is the single thing that, that you need to do or believe to be within this camp? We'll identify that and then sort of shrug our shoulders about everything else. Right. Right. But again, I think with, with a, um, positive intention, mm-hmm. right? It, it's that idea of like, all you have to believe is X. Like I'm going to make it as easy as I can possibly make it. It's just these five things, or it's just these two things or whatever it is, you know? And it's not the first time, obviously in history that something like that has happened as Presbyterians, we could point to the so-called five points of Calvinism as a great example. When those points are first enumerated at the Senate of Dort in the early 1600s, nobody would have dreamed that you could reduce Reformation theology down to five points, right? That would have been absurd. These five points were only significant in the sense that they were rebuttals to five arguments being made against the much larger Reformed soteriology. But over time, that huge thing that was Reformed soteriology and and theology was reduced down to just these five points to the point now that people commonly will ask like, well, like how many of the five points do you adhere to? And if it's all five, that's like, wow, that's extreme. You know, that's, that's a good illustration I think of how this works over time that the, the, the singling out of the core inevitably leads to an idea that only that core matters. And then once you get there, you start whittling down what's included in that core. You're, you're constantly making it, it smaller. I can't help but wonder 
and this is totally speculative, if like missionary or evangelical movements of the 20th century also contributed to this, again, with a good intention to identify the, the thing that a non-believer needs to latch onto to be saved, to become a Christian, and share that in the simplest way, you know, to, to, to lower all barriers possible for entry. And, and then what happened, though, is people just kind of stuck with that. Well, I was, I was told, this is the only thing. I believe in Jesus, and, and here we are. You know, again, yeah. I don't know, but... Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And, and I think it's charitable, but probably also accurate to impute the best of motives to a lot of these efforts. You know, I think it is intended either to make um, pedagogy simple, mm-hmm. like like let's just pass down the essentials and not worry about the rest, or to avoid unnecessary conflict or division. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people can have a very paternalistic attitude towards others and think, you know, the, these complicated doctrines cause so much division, they can be withheld from average people and then revealed as you gain more knowledge or understanding or something like that. Um, but then the reality is that everything that was withheld is not passed down. And so those things become lost, even though, in theory, they remain beliefs of the church. So... I guess the question, though, is why is this a bad thing? Because I could imagine someone listening to this and thinking, okay, so what you're saying is Christianity gets simpler over time and, and easier, and that sounds good, not bad. Like there, I'm sure are people who prefer the idea of just saying, well, believe in Jesus and nothing else matters, to you know, recite the creeds and, and learn the confessions of faith and, and get into the minutiae of the Christian tradition. So what's the problem? And I would say the problem is humanity. That human beings don't function with these minimal conceptions of, of self and identity. That they have a tendency to want these, these thicker, fuller connections to their world. Uh, we have all sorts of questions about all sorts of stuff, and we want answers to them. We want to develop like a full-orbed view of the world, and that doesn't really happen when you're operating on, on just minimal principles. So we're constantly filling in gaps, and if Christianity has been reduced down to one or two ideas, then we've got to look elsewhere to fill in those other spaces in order to have those, those thick connections. So if you've ever looked at frustration with the modern church and said to yourself, this is an alloy of Christianity and something else, whether it's, uh, you know, Christianity and Hellenistic philosophy, Christianity and politics, whether left-wing or right-wing, Christianity and patriotism, whatever the combination that frustrates you, that's what we're pointing to here. Because the question is, how did that other thing get in there? How did that other thing get mixed in with Christianity? What I'm suggesting is it, it got mixed in because first we created the space for it. We hollowed out what used to be there, and we left a void. And, and human beings, like nature, abhor a vacuum. 
We're not going to stop asking the questions just because someone has decided those are not essential any longer. And when we ask them, we're now going to be looking to other sources to answer them. So today, if you have questions about how to live your life, if you have questions about what it means to be a human being, to be a man, to be a woman, what it means to do your work well, uh, what the meaning of the world around you is, things like that, uh, you want answers to those questions or things you're thinking about. And if the church doesn't have answers to those things, you will find those answers elsewhere. So Christianity, of course, does have answers to all of those questions. But this process of essentializing oftentimes has, has cut those answers out of the Christian inheritance. So you could you know, grow up in some sort of non-denominational church that believes in this core of Christianity and nothing else, and the only thing being passed down to you is that core. And even that, you're not sure. Like, what are the essentials of the essentials, right? Uh, because we have sort of internalized that desire to, to bear things down and to, to trim things away. In the meantime, if you're curious about you know, how to live a, a good life, maybe you're going to supplement by reading some Stoic philosophers. Right. Maybe you're going to start looking at some like Zen Buddhist meditation stuff so that you can be more spiritual. Maybe you'll start reading uh, political philosophy and kind of find a lot of meaning in the way that various political movements have explained the world. So you're filling in those gaps. Even as a Christian, you're not necessarily looking to Christian sources to think about those things because maybe you're not even aware that Christians have thought about those things. Because, again, the assumption is if the church had something to say about this, surely my pastors would have told me. And if they haven't, then it must be up to me to go and find that stuff elsewhere. And that's how you end up with people who identify as Orthodox evangelical Christians whose worldview, whose identity is shaped more by other commitments that they don't even see are not compatible because the way that they've thought about their faith is it, it's a little core mm -hmm. that a lot of other stuff can be integrated with and bolted onto. Right. As long as I'm believing in Jesus or whatever that thing is, then I'm a Christian but since Christianity isn't addressing all of the other questions that I have, I'll find answers everywhere else. But I'm still a Christian, even though I'm looking to all these secular sources. Sort of. Right, yeah. right. Or other religious sources mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever they happen to be, mm -hmm. creating that sort of hybrid or fusion. Right. The point just being that you can tell people things are not essential, but that's not going to change the fact that they still have questions in those areas and are going to pursue those things, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then maybe there's something about this essentializing project that we should be suspicious of. Like maybe we shouldn't rush to identify the essentials of Christianity and then label everything else as non-essential. Or to think about it another way, uh, what if God didn't give us any extra stuff? Like, what if when he gave us this faith, he didn't include extra parts? If you think about the analogy uh, of an engine, 
if you rebuild an engine and you have a lot of screws and, and gears and I don't know much about engines, whatever it is that <laughs> widgets, the, widgets <laughs> left over, you could look at all that stuff and say, well, I guess it doesn't need those things. Like those were not essentials because right. I put it back together without them. The question is going to be, does it still work the way it was intended to? And the answer is probably not. If you've got a lot of extra parts left over, it's not going to be the thing that this designer intended. And I think the same thing is true for the Christian faith. We, with a high view of scripture, can say, like, there's nothing in the Bible that God gave us that we don't need. He didn't give us a bunch of extra stuff that, that you know, he's like, hey, look, here's some part of my word that it's cool for you not to worry about. Just tune this part out. Just Just focus on the essentials. You'll never find in scripture a section where the Bible says, hey, look, Nothing else matters. You know, this is all you have to, to focus on. Even those areas which seem to suggest that, you know, just love God and love one another. And, and that encompasses the whole law. That's not a dismissal of the whole law. Like that's a summing up. That's saying all of this stuff matters because it fits within these two large themes. So again, it's, it's a different attitude. So I would say human beings need to have these thick confessional identities. As a result, we should embrace everything that God has given us and not start looking to, to whittle it away or to prioritize what's important and what's not, but try to take on as much of what he's given us as we possibly can and find all of the, the meaning that he has given us in Scripture in order to do that. I recognize, though, that that does not solve the problem that this whole thing began with, which is what do you do about disagreement and the tendency that disagreements have to undermine unity. It's a real problem, and I think what we have to do is find another solution than this one. And maybe it involves maintaining unity while holding those differences in tension, but not reclassifying those things as secondary. You know, maybe there's a way for me to have unity between like me as a Presbyterian and someone else as a Baptist, even though we have diametrically opposed views of baptism, maybe we could still acknowledge one another as brothers in Christ, work together for the good of the kingdom without saying, well, baptism doesn't really matter. You know, that's not really important. Maybe there's a way to say, no, it's really important and we don't agree and we're still going to work together, Yeah, but we're not going to jettison these things we don't agree on. I, I like that vision. I, I have some questions I, I'm, or maybe just one question. It sounds like you're, you're making a theological maximalist argument <laughs> in which everything in scripture let's say is essential because like your metaphor alluded to god wouldn't give us extra parts so everything there is essential and i think everyone <laughs> would agree with that you know like god like everything god says in in the bible if it's all inspired then it's all essential in in that sense so maybe my first question is 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 that is that the case is 
Yeah. Is it I, even helpful to think about essential and non-essential is the question. I, d- I don't think so. Like I, okay. I think it is, I think it's valid to prioritize, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that like every piece of the puzzle is of equal value. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm not saying that, that there aren't some things that are greater than others. Uh, I think that the scripture itself right. would, would give us a sense that, that there are indeed some truths that, yeah. that are, are greater than others. But, but it doesn't mean that those lesser truths are are unessential. Like I, that's the point that I'm trying to make. That that even the pieces that have a humbler role to play still have a role to play. And even if we can't figure out exactly how everything is supposed to go together, uh, it, it's it's better to keep trying and to hold those those things in tension than to jettison that project because it creates divisiveness. You know, I think that that's really the the point that I'm making, that the solution to our disagreements is not to kind of cordon off that area and try as much as possible to minimize and and get rid of it. Because we're not good as human beings at figuring out the difference between inconsequential and essential. You know, there are people who would explain to you that, that, the doctrine of election and predestination, that that's, that's way down the list, really obscure, better not to think about. And yet I look in Scripture and I say, well, no, it seems kind of central to redemptive history. So who's right? You know, I, I think, again, I want to maintain the value of talking about that stuff, even if we don't agree, rather than paring it all down to essentials that we can hold to in their um, impoverishment simply because I don't think it's enough to keep us rooted. You know, if you think about human beings as trees and that metaphor of, of the righteous person as a rooted tree, I think we need all these roots, the big ones and the small ones to keep us grounded. And that if you go around pulling up roots and asking yourself, well, is this an essential root? Or is this a non-essential root? Eventually, you're going to pull up the wrong ones, and you're going to find that the tree is easily uprooted and easy to blow away. And and that, to me, sounds like a good description of the the evangelical church, right? That, that good intentions, and to the extent that it has a confession of faith, it is a um, essentially orthodox one, let's say. Mm-hmm. But it's a church easily blown by the wind, easily sort of overtaken by cultural forces. Uh, and it's, it's not as deeply rooted as it thinks it is. Yeah. So the exciting part of this, I think is as you've done relating it to our human nature and thinking the, the offer, the opportunity is to sink our roots deeper into the, resources and the recesses of orthodoxy the reservoir as it were and and to become those people like stable trees beside beside the water i'm i'm thinking of orthodoxy again by gk chesterton i've mentioned that i've been reading that recently and really that whole book is him just acknowledging like i had this question and i thought things were so you know, so off. I I had this fundamental question and I looked to secular sources and I was like, ah, I'm not really sure. And lo and behold, the church 
orthodoxy has this robust answer and she always did that's like always the conclusion of every chapter and i think that's sort of what we're saying here actually is going back to that source of orthodoxy is good for us as as human beings too and fulfills us as as persons yeah i mean here's an analogy you might think of it as a generational problem you know that that a parent passes something down to the next generation and there are a lot of parents who out of the best of intentions are really conscious of like all the stuff they didn't like about their own upbringing and all of the mistakes that they don't want to perpetuate and so as a result they make a lot of decisions about what not to do like i'm i'm going to let my kids decide what they want to do about this that that and i'm not going to force them to to see things my way or anything like that i'll let them choose and you do that thinking that you are the most enlightened and benevolent generation of parents that's ever existed and you've passed down just the most uh, minimal burden, right? And then ironically, the next generation comes to realize that they didn't get everything passed down to them that their parents got or their grandparents got and they resent it. They have a sense that and they they missed out and they don't feel like they have as as real or defined an identity as other people around them they have a sense of rootlessness in life and they're looking for some source of authenticity these are all things that they could have received but they were withheld for the best of reasons and i think in the church, we've done something similar. We have refused to pass down everything but what we thought was the best or most necessary, thinking that this would you know, smooth the path for future generations. And I think what it's done is it's had like a twofold effect. And for some of us, we look back with a sense that, hey, we, we didn't receive the inheritance we should have. And we've spent our lives trying to recover that, you know, trying to get back connected with this richer sense of our faith. For others, though, it's led to that sense of, of, of rootlessness. Our sense of ourselves as Christians is shallow. And in comparison to what we see around us, it seems very thin. And these thick expressions around us are more attractive. You know, and I, th I think that's kind of the paradox, right, is that you, you see in sort of the evangelical world this division of, you know, some people who've inherited it and now want something more, and other people who inherit it and think this is such a, worthless thing that's been passed down to me that that i'd like something more outside of this I'll go somewhere else to find what i need again this wasn't what was intended but i think it is an unintended consequence of this kind of an approach to our theological inheritance so again it's important for us i think to embrace the whole thing you know let's not recover it only to lose it again and to think about how we pass it down and how we continue to return to it and sink more and more roots down um, 
not ask ourselves like what's what's essential you know what what can i ignore and and what do i need but really just say whatever god's given me i I want it and i may not know how all the pieces go together but i'm going to do the best that i can with the help of the spirit and and try to hold all this stuff together and not not dismiss anything out of hand and, and certainly pass down as much as i can to the next generation Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.